Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Eno Line Media presents The History of Being Black. Welcome to The History of Being Black and Happy New Year. 2022 is starting off in a wonderful way, uh, at least for for those of you listening and for those of us here, because we're still here. So we're going to count that as a positive. But we're actually really excited to have a very special guest with us today on the podcast. We are joined by Rocky Bucano. He's the executive director and president of the Universal Hip Hop Museum. First of all, welcome, Rocky. Second of all, that sounds like the coolest job in the history of the universe. So tell me about the Universal Hip Hop Museum and how does one become in a position such as yourself? Uh, so this is a uh, a project that I've been working on for the last 11 years. Uh, I started as a teenage DJ way, way back before hip hop was even a thing. I, mm-hmm. You know, I started as a DJ back in the mid 70s, pretty much dating myself right now. But uh, I've been working on this project for 11 years, the Universal Hip Hop Museum. Our slogan is is that we are the official record of hip hop. Our mission is dedicated to the preservation and celebration of hip hop history globally, past, present, and future. And that's why we call ourselves Universal Hip Hop Museum. So I would, when you say you were a teenage DJ in the seventies, and you grew up in the Bronx, right? I did grow up in the Bronx. My cousin uh, was Pete DJ Jones. He is one of the preeminent. DJs of that era. He came out of the 60s, early 70s, and he was New York's number one mobile disc jockey. And I was his understudy as a as a young teenager. I used to carry his crates out of the van as he set up the equipment. Got you know, I got backstage access to all these big time clubs that I wasn't even supposed to be at because I was only a teenager. I was underage, so I would just sit behind him as he you know, did his thing uh, at the clubs. And I learned how to become a DJ myself just by studying what he did, the music that he played, how the crowd reacted. And it was a, it was a great learning experience being a, a teenage DJ uh, sitting behind New York's number one disc jockey. I could only imagine, but thinking back to when hip hop was first a thing, or like you just said, it wasn't really a thing, but we can look back and say, wow, that was like when hip hop was pure. It was it was just unique and authentic, but it also wasn't universally accepted or even known at that point. So what was that like? Was it more of a struggle? Can you remember the challenges of getting people to actually accept this as an art form and as music back then? So um, hip hop originated in 1973. I started as a professional DJ in 1974, so a year after hip-hop began but hip-hop was coming right in the middle of when disco was king if you remember the the mid-70s everything was disco Mm -hmm. if you look back on the early flyers from any of the hip-hop early hip-hop parties which again weren't called hip-hop parties 
everything was disco. The clubs were discotheques. And the teenagers that uh, started to create this new art form really started outside in the parks. Uh, they would hook up their sound systems to lampposts. I'm not sure people saw historical footage of people running wires into the streetlights of New York City. And really, it was a way for the teenagers to just get out, have fun, express themselves, not really knowing that this thing was even going to turn in to what it is now. Uh, so in, in the early days of hip hop, it was really just about uh, creating the sense of community where the teenagers got outside, they set up their sound systems, and the local uh, peers, their friends and people from other surrounding neighborhoods would come to watch these outdoor you know, black jams. Mm-hmm. And uh, that translated uh, a couple years into club promoters saying, hey, you know, th- this hip hop thing is really catching fire in the streets. Let's bring it from the streets and let's bring it into the nightclubs. And then once it got into the nightclubs, it gave those teenagers a new platform to showcase their talent. They started to see that there was money being made from promoting these parties. And then eventually people like Sylvia Robinson and other people paid attention to it. And they started to you know, bring these cats that were uh, creating these amazing chore- choreographed rhymes and DJ sets into the recording studio to create uh, the first commercial records. The first commercial records were recorded in 1979. You had the big, the big one is, you know, Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. But there was actually a record before that by the Fatback Band called King Tim the Third. Here we go. Clap your hands and you stomp your feet because you're listening to the sound of the show shot beat. I'm the K-I-N-G, the T-I-M, King Tim the Third, and I am him. Which is actually the first rap record that people really don't know about. And then a couple months after that, you had uh, more groups uh, recording records. Curtis Blow released Christmas Rappin'. Uh, in December of 1979, the Funky Four Plus One, another group that Sylvia Robinson recorded, had a, a song called uh, That's the Joint. Funky Four Plus One were the first group to be featured on Saturday Night Live, the first rap group to be featured on Saturday Night Live. And radio at that time was playing, still playing disco, playing a lot of you know new R&B kind of stuff. And rap wasn't even an uh, uh, afterthought. You know, so... Uh, the challenge for those first labels uh, that invested in this new music genre was how do I get it exposed? Luckily for Sylvia Robinson, she was part of a distribution company uh, under underneath uh, Morris Levy, who had Suture Records at that time. And Morris Levy, being a gangster of sorts, was able to help get Sylvia Robinson's record out to the masses. And that was really the first record that really cracked the airwaves in, in terms of getting radio exposure. Uh, but it wasn't until years later uh, when radio really started to pay attention. And it, it, it was a challenge. It's st- in many cases, it's still a challenge because radio today, although hip hop is much different today than it was back then, uh, they, they still only play 10, 15 records. They don't really play most of the music that's out there. So that's so interesting to hear you kind of, you already kind of gave us a a chronological timeline of it going from the street corners to, like you said, SNL. But what's a big moment outside of signing with the record deals that 
for you being a young DJ uh, right at the beginning of this genre being a, a thing that people are actually recognizing? Do you do you consider like this is the moment that I knew hip hop made it? Like, is there a particular moment that you can think of out beyond the, the uh, Saturday Night Live or once those commercial records start being produced? No, I mean, it's not one. It's a combination of a bunch of stuff happening that really created the snowball effect for hip hop. The first hip hop movie was Wild Style by Charlie Ahern. It wasn't a huge success. It's more of a success today than it was when it first came out because it's now a cult movie. Uh, that's seen all around the world. And then after that, Harry Belafonte was executive producer of the movie Beach Street, which came right after Wild Style. And then Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin produced their first movie, uh, which was um, Crush Groove, which featured Sheila E and the Fat Boys and Run DMC. So the combination of the records being played, they parted on radio, and these new films that were taking hip hop and putting it on the big screen uh, really made it, you know, started to get this global appeal. But it wasn't really until MTV came into uh, understanding that this new music genre was something that they needed to put on rotation for music videos. And, and once MTV started to add videos like LL Cool J and Run DMC and and some of those early other uh, artists like the Fat Boys and Salt and Pepper, that's when you saw that it started to really take over. So 1980 to 1982, very nascent years for, for the commercialization of hip hop. And then the fashion component started to kick in. And then you start to see commercialization in actual uh, marketing on television. Curtis Blow being the first artist to record a Sprite television commercial. So th there was a lot of things happening that led up to this thing that most people thought was going to be a fad that just kept on growing and growing and growing. So tell me, do you have any personal feelings? I consider you obviously a hip hop expert. When you mention like when hip hop made it to MTV, obviously that blasted it out to the entire world in a different way. And then you start having people all over the world starting to do hip hop or start to rap. Do you have any do you take ownership over being from the boogie down when you see other people from other places rapping as far as different rap styles, different ethnicities, races, ages, sexes? <laughs> what are your feelings about how hip hop has now just spread the gamut from who can do it? Listen, you know, I admire uh, everyone that is involved in hip hop. And what people should know is hip hop is not just rap music. Rap is just one aspect of hip hop. Hip hop is a living, breathing culture that embodies five basic elements. It's the DJ, it's the MC, it's the graffiti artists, it's the break dancers, and the fifth most important element is knowledge. Knowledge of self, knowledge of overstanding. Africa Bambada and the Zulu Nation formed the Zulu Nation in 1974, Kuhurk being the first hip hop party. And since then, hip hop left New York, spread all around the U.S., down south, west coast. And now you can't go anywhere in the world without having some form of hip hop being on display, whether it's on radio, whether it's in fashion, whether it's just in lifestyle or it's in dance. Uh, hip hop is now featured in commercials from Cereal box, you know, uh, cereals like Kellogg's and Frosty Flakes and 
Sprite and Mercedes Benz and, you know, all, all, all types of, uh, you know, aspects of today's modern society uses hip hop in some form or fashion to promote and market other products. So hip hop is now a global phenomenon. It's not going to go anywhere because it was created by youth and it's the music of the streets. And as long as it resonates with today's youth, it's going to continue to evolve. So can you talk to me about the tone of a lot of the hip hop that a lot of times is violent in nature or misogynistic or different things where it seems like hip hop took a turn from kind of being cool, happy party music to, you know, having to have the label warnings on it. Do you have any feelings about the, the turn that some hip hop has taken or some rap has taken in hip hop? Yeah. So, you know, I'm not one to censor anybody. Hip hop is always about, you know, it, it's the voice of the voiceless. Uh, but, you know, obviously when there's money in certain industries, it influences the creativity and the direction on uh, what is supposed to be about peace, unity, love, and having fun, and then it becomes something else. And, you know, some of that is obviously what I would say not really hip-hop. It's more of a commercial emulation of what hip-hop is supposed to be, but done with a very negative tone, because hip-hop is all about bringing people together. It's not about separating people. It's not about making people feel less than someone else. It's about uplifting and empowering. And that's what the true essence of hip hop really is. So, you know, when hip hop started to have this cross section between being this movement of spirited, fun, party, outgoing, ambitious, com competitive, to start being more gangster driven, more about drugs and the dark side of the streets. But it took a turn because that was the realities of what was happening in those communities. So, you can't really fault it from going that way because what happened was, you know, people saw that this was a way for them to say, this is what life is like in my hood. This is what it is. It's about storytelling and it's about being truthful. So as much as people may not like some of the uh, messages that are being, you know, uh, elevated and amplified, some of that is reality, to be honest. No, I agree with you wholeheartedly, but sometimes I think, particularly with rap, a lot of it is the art imitating life, but then at some point, life starts imitating the art, and then I think that's where you really just kind of lose our way over, is this a, a real situation or a contrived situation that then becomes a real situation from the music? So I'm curious, do you have like a favorite story you like to share from back in the day and seeing some of these young artists um, up and coming, or maybe some, like you mentioned, some of the clubs and parties you were able to attend that now you look at someone that we know who they are now, but you remember back when, before they were? Yeah, I, I have a million stories. Just give me 25 of them. I'm kidding. No, give me, what was your favorite one to tell? <laughs> well, uh, I also managed Teddy Riley when he was producing Michael Jackson. Wow. And I, I've, I'll tell you a story about that. So uh, Michael Jackson, uh, Teddy had produced the Dangerous album, which everyone knows was one of the all-time greatest albums of Michael Jackson's career, and he was working on his new album, the History album, and asked Teddy basically to come back as a producer. And uh, Teddy was working at the Hit Factory. The Hit Factory has two studios, a main studio and a, basically a smaller, more private studio that Teddy uh, preferred because it had, you know, a bedroom and he can sleep there and work there. And 
So Michael Jackson would go back and forth from the main studio to the studio that Teddy was working at. And anytime that Michael would come to the studio that Teddy was working at, we had to clear the room. And there was one day when I guess Michael wanted to hear the music that Teddy had been working on for several weeks. And and Teddy's like, all right, come on over. And, and I'm sitting out there in the lobby. We cleared out the thing and Michael and Teddy are in, in the studio. And Michael leaves and, and Teddy comes to me and says, Michael's crazy. He wants me to do this rock and roll stuff. And, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm like, Teddy, that's the king of pop. You're not going to record any records for him? He's like, nope. <laughs> I'm like, wow. Wow. <laughs> so he didn't do it? Didn't do it. Wow. And what I think was so amazing for me listening to you tell that story is that the point that you're saying, Mike and Teddy, that you're saying Michael Jackson and Teddy Riley, we just on first name basis. So uh, that's a pretty cool life to live, <laughs> to refer to Mike as Mike and Teddy as Teddy. Correct. Do you have, I won't ask you, do you have a favorite rapper or rap album, but do you have like a top five that just stays on rotation regardless of when it came out that if someone was going to say, hey, can you introduce me to hip hop? Do you have like a, the top few that you would say, hey, check this out to really get into it? Absolutely. 100%. So obviously, KRS-One to me is one of the all-time greatest poets, entertainers. Uh, so his South Bronx song is says it all. You know, hip hop coming from the South Bronx, it's like the anthem of, of the borough. Uh, Dougie Fresh, the show. One of the songs that no matter where you are in the world, you hear that song, you just you just have to get up and dance to it. Uh, Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel, The Message, one of the all-time classic conscious songs of all time. And obviously coming right behind that, uh, Public Enemy and Fight the Power. You can't go wrong mm. with that. Yes. I, I will. When you said the show, I remember recording that on a cassette and rewinding it over and over again to learn it. Me and my brothers and us. <laughs> well, I'm a rapper right now, but you know, I'm, I'm known to dabble in a little old school hip hop. And I actually remember the first rap album was Curtis Blow, The Breaks. And it was like a, I feel like it was like a yellow album cover with black. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I remember that's what I grew, grew up on. So now, Tell me about the Universal Hip Hop Museum. It's, it's going to be based in the Bronx. It's under construction right now. We broke ground in May. It's, it's part of a mixed-use development project called the Bronx Point. We're building a 55,000-square-foot state-of-the-art museum for hip hop. Uh, it will open in 2024. From May until where we are today, you can actually see the, the corn you know, uh, shell of the museum standing up right right now you know for those people who want to come up into the bronx you can come see the future home of hip-hop the, the structure is already up but there's a par apartment buildings that's being built on top of it and there's going to be um 567 units of afford 100 affordable housing that sits on top of the museum the museum serves as the cultural anchor of this development project that was commissioned by the city of new york so um it's a it's a great project. Uh, we we have an exhibit called the Revolution of Hip Hop, uh, which uh, we actually just closed. Uh, the current exhibit it, it was a celebration of the years 1980 to 1985. Uh, it just closed last month, and we're getting ready to redesign the exhibit to celebrate 1986 to 1990. And that new exhibit 
will open in February. And the revolution of hip hop is like a sneak preview of the Future Museum. So it gives people a chance to get a, a small sample of what it's going to be like to be in the Future Museum. So now where can we see those current exhibits? The one that just closed, where was that? So it's at the Bronx Terminal Market, right across the street from where the construction site of the Future Museum is at. So it's centrally located. It's five blocks south of Yankee Stadium, easily easily accessible by all mass transit lines here in New York City. Uh, we're actually going to have a virtual version of it up online uh, sometime in the next couple months. So people who cannot travel because of COVID uh, will be able to experience the exhibit uh, virtually. Uh, so we're, we're getting ready to do that now. Okay, so I'm marking my calendar for 2024 because I would have to imagine the Universal Hip Hop Museum opening would kind of be something I would want to try to have an actual invitation to and not try to sneak my way in. It sounds like security would be tight because everybody who is anybody would probably want to be there with you that evening. So when you're thinking about what this museum can do, uh, beyond for the actual community, as far as you were saying, a cultural center for that actual neighborhood. What is your hope? I know you mentioned earlier on the mission of the museum, but what is your personal hope that this museum will be able to to give to the world? Well, education is at the core of our mission. You know, so we're going to be creating, you know, uh, authentic curriculums for K through 12. We'll be sharing that curriculum with local uh, schools that are here in New York City, as well as around the world. Uh, we'll have an online educational uh, modular system where teachers and educators will be able to download our curriculum and use it uh, as part of their STEM learning uh, process for their teaching for the students because hip-hop has become such a, a way to uh, inspire kids to learn differently. It's being used in science, it's being used in math, it's being used in the arts, being used to basically just teach kids how to read. Uh, so... Uh, we are creating different levels of curriculum. We actually just uh, teamed up with the Simons Foundation, and we are creating a hip-hop science program that is based on hip-hop and physics. And we, wow. have, we have some of the top African-American physicists working on this project with us, and it's going to be a collaboration between Nobel Prize-winning scientists and hip-hop artists talking about how hip-hop and physics actually are connected. Wow. So that's that's a pretty amazing idea. Right? <laughs> that's exciting. Tell me, um, who is someone right now you're excited about in, in hip hop, a contemporary? Uh, out of today's contemporary artists, I would say J. Cole is my absolute favorite. Uh, mm -hmm. Kendrick Lamar. I like the young lady um, Rhapsody. I think she's very talented. I, I do like, you know, all the babies, little baby, the baby. <laughs> I like all those guys, you know, but we have very similar taste. So I'm going to, I'm going to consider myself in good company. Uh, Rhapsody is very hot, very underrated. And yeah, J. Cole is, is probably one of my tops right now for sure. Absolutely. But I always hold on to like Outcast. If anyone ever asks me my number one, it's going to be Outcast. And then I go down from there. Everybody else can fill in the rest of the list. Um, so on the, on the history of being Black, we like to challenge our listeners to be a part of the change, be the change. And so when we have wonderful guests such as yourself join us, we like to give you an opportunity to offer us an idea for an action item. Once we listen to this episode, what can we do? Uh, whether it's in the realm of hip hop or supporting hip hop, supporting our communities or whatever, what is something a listener right now can do to be part of the change uh, to help our communities? Well, the, the first thing is to understand what hip hop is. 
it's not just what you hear on the radio. Hip hop is a way of life. And if you are really, you know, you call yourself hip hop, you should be promoting and advocating that hip hop is, is really rooted in peace, love, unity, and having fun. It's not about creating separation. It's not about killing. It's not about, you know, elevating oneself over another. It's about how do we all uplift each other together? You know, one person wins, we all win. And I would say, you know, if you're in the true spirit of hip hop, you know, how can you empower other people to be better than, them, you know, better than themselves? And uh, if we can all figure out how to be 1% better every day, then we will find that we will build better and more productive communities. You know, our communities are so not united. You know, we, we have people who are doing very well. We have people who are less fortunate. And unfortunately, we don't share resources together. If we find a way to unite our communities, the economic power that we always spoke about will actually start to happen. And that's what we can do. I love that. I love that. I believe I could commit to being 1% better every day, Rocky. I think I could do that. I hope our listeners can. I mean, that's really resonated with me. That does not sound like something I should not be able to do. So that is what I will take for my Be The Change. Hashtag Be The Change. Thank you so much, Rocky Bucano. Congratulations on the Universal Hip Hop Museum. I will be watching. We all will be watching. And we will also include the information to be able to uh, support those virtual exhibits that you have going on. Thank you so much for sharing just a little bit of your wonderfully fantastic historic life in hip hop, among other things. And hopefully you'll come back uh, and join us again with um, some more updates and uh, whatever you got going on. We'd love to hear about it. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you guys so much for joining us again for the new year. Again, take care of yourselves. And until next time, we will see you on the History of Being Black. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer, Ariel Mancibo. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And on IG and Twitter at History of Being Black. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion media production. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.